0: Welcome to My Two Cents with host J.R. Robinson and co-host Jessica Lonnie-Rich. Are you on track for a secure retirement? If things go badly in the markets, will my nest egg still last? How do changing tax rules impact consumer savings and spending strategies? How do I know my financial advisor is competent and ethical? How do I organize my financial life? We'll answer important personal finance questions like these and so much more and we'll do it in a way that makes a dry arcane topic engaging and entertaining. And now here are your hosts, JR and Jessica.
1: Aloha and welcome to another episode of My Two Cents. I'm Jessica Lani Rich and I'm here with my co-host JR Robinson. JR is the owner and founder of Financial Planning Hawaii and also the co founder of software maker Nest Egg Guru. Good afternoon, JR.
2: Good afternoon to you, Jessica. Thank you, as always, for doing the show with me. Uh, This is our 11th show, hard to believe. And I would like to uh, remind our listeners that they may listen to previous episodes by visiting the voiceamerica.com website and searching for My Two Cents with J.R. Robinson. You may also find our podcasts on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, and Google Play, and I think a bunch of other platforms that I'm not that familiar with, but uh, we're out there, which should be easy enough to find. Listeners who would like to follow my content um, that is outside of the show, outside of the content that we're doing the shows here, uh, you may visit the Financial Planning Hawaii website at f p And on the right hand corner of the homepage, you'll see, um, there's a little subscribe button. And if you click on that, you'll get the same content that all of, um, all of my financial planning Hawaii, uh, clients receive just to keep up on, on stuff like that. I promise no one from financial planning Hawaii will solicit your business, nor will, do we share your name or email address with anyone else. So if you'd like to just hear, see my content, that's the way you do it. As always, the sole purpose of this show is to educate consumers and to raise awareness of important, timely financial planning issues. Um, I should also mention that all opinions expressed in this show, and sometimes I have strong opinions, um, those opinions are mine alone. And um, nothing in this show should be construed as specific investment advice, tax advice, or legal guidance, or any other specific recommendations. It's general in nature. so. Uh, get that out of the way first.
1: That is always a good reminder, Jr. and for today's show, I see that you've used another provocative title, Dirty Business. Can you tell our audience what is in store for today?
2: Sure. As you and I have discussed before on this show, uh, I am a zealous advocate for consumer protection and education. In the personal finance and and personal financial planning space. I've worked in that space for more than 30 years. And over that time, I've gained a pretty deep understanding, and I guess some might even say a jaded view. Um, But I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly aspects uh, aside sometimes that consumers rarely see. So a big part of the reason why I was so happy to land this gig um, for you know the My Two Cents podcast was that it gives me a platform to share my unvarnished views on some of these topics. And sometimes, uh, these are positive developments in the industry, such as the, you know, the shows we did on, on how retirement income sustainability research has evolved and the shows that we did on the non-investment elements of financial planning and other times like today's show, for instance, my intent is to expose maybe the, uh, less seemly side of the financial advice business.
1: Wow. Okay. I am really intrigued now. And I'm sure many of our listeners are too. But before the show today, I read over the summary of your program and I see that you will be exploring the relationship between the insurance industry and also the financial planning industry. Now, JR, you are a financial planner, but what's your beef with the insurance industry?
2: Actually, I I, I have um, a beef with both industries. In, in my opinion, um, both both put their own profit mar- motives ahead, sometimes far ahead uh, of those of consumers. And in fact, in some ways, the financial planning industry, or more specifically, um, the Certified Financial Planning Board of Standards and its member, and which controls a, a broad segment of the financial planning community is worse um, than the insurance industry because it spends tens of millions of dollars every year telling consumers that its CFP members are held to a fiduciary standard that requires them to always put the consumer's interests first, while at the same time, legions of its members are selling insurance products with undisclosed opaque commissions. And to me, that's dirty business, which is you'll see is sort of a recurring theme throughout this show. That's hence the title. Uh, However, uh, that is perhaps putting the cart before the horse because it's actually the insurance industry that created and, in fact, indirectly controls and exerts its power, money, and influence on the financial planning industry. And I'll explain all of that in a minute, but uh, before that, I, I I will explain why I am not a big fan of the insurance industry.
1: They are I'm all ears, and I'm sure our listeners are too. I get the impression that you think insurance is a bad thing, but actually it is something we all need, right?
2: Absolutely it is. As we discussed in our programs about um, the non-investment elements of financial planning, insurance is, is very definitely one of those critical elements. Insurance obviously plays an essential role in terms of helping consumers manage financial risks that may occur from catastrophic losses so we need life insurance to protect against risk caused by death we need disability insurance to replace lost wage income We need property insurance to protect against the loss of personal property, like a fire or something that burns down your house. And we also need it to protect against litigation if it's an accident that maybe we caused. So the list goes on. There's very real need for insurance as a product. Um, In fact, as I recall, uh, when I was in the CFP prep program uh, many years ago, the section of the study materials that focused on the sale of insurance products was referred to as risk management. And that obviously sounds um, much better than more colloquially referring to it as, as insurance. But um, but I digress. My, my beef with the insurance industry is not so much with the products themselves as with the manner in which they're distributed to consumers. Namely, they are sold with opaque commissions that are almost never disclosed to consumers in advance.
1: And that's a bad thing.
2: It's not a good thing. <laughs> Uh, So suppose an insurance agent is helping you determine what type of life insurance is best for your situation. He or she has a range of different products to choose from, each of which has different features and each of which pays him a different uh, commission for selling it. So while it's understood that the products have different features and that the one with the lowest commission may not necessarily be the optimal choice, The obvious problem is that the insurance agent has an incentive to recommend the one that pays him or her the most, right? It's intuitive. Um, My position has always been that the amount of insurance commission that an agent receives on the sale of a particular product and the difference in commissions paid across different products is relevant information to the consumer's decision-making process and should be disclosed. So that is one big beef that I have with the insurance industry.
1: Ah, uh, yes, I can see how that's a problem. I never thought about that before. Why doesn't the insurance industry require its agents to disclose that information to us?
2: that's it's a very funny joke jessica in in um in the interest of full disclosure uh, i should also say i'm a financial planner and i also hold an insurance producer's license um we'll get more on that later but yeah you'll see where i'm going with this um but once i sat in on an insurance continuing education uh course as all, all insurance producers have to get a certain amount of ce credit every couple of years and um in one of the courses i was foolish enough to ask the instructor the very question that you just asked um you know why why don't why is an insurance commission disclosed? And he looked at me as if I was the dumbest person on planet Earth. He told me in no uncertain terms that people have very real insurance needs and that if we were required to disclose the amount of commission that we re- receive from the sale of insurance products, then nobody would buy the insurance that they need. Now, I'm not kidding. That's what he told me. Um, wow. <laughs> so people would not buy insurance products if you were required to tell them that the amount of, the amount of commission you were paid on the transaction. Wow. To my mind, that's a flaw in the design of the product, not a flaw in consumer behavior.
1: Yikes. I see your point. But isn't that how things work in the brokerage industry, too? Aren't stocks and bonds sold with commissions, too, JR?
2: Um, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I started out as, you know, from one of the earlier shows, too. Thirty years ago, I started as a stockbroker and was paid 100 percent on commissions. Um, and some of those commissions were opaque. Um these days, however, I, I, I think a lot of that has evolved over time. Every time a person buys or sells a stock, uh, the commission is reported on the on the trade confirmation. Uh, bonds are used to be a different story, but even those, the markups are all are all disclosed. Mutual fund sales charges are now clearly disclosed, and you know twelve b one fees used to be opaque, but now it's, it's lots. Disclosure has come a long way in the brokerage industry. It's not perfect still. There's actually, I think, lots of room still for improvement there, but there's been no movement for pro in that direction for progress in the insurance side. Um, that said the traditional stockbrokers, like when I started out, are also a dying breed. These, these days, there are very few financial advisors who are paid on commissions. Um, most including financial planners like me are, are paid, uh, either clearly disclosed asset based fees or on flat fees or hourly fees or subscription based fees. Um, and, and, um, there are often no commissions charged for trading securities anymore. Um, the only time that opaque commissions typically come into play these days, or most commonly, I should see, say anyway, is with respect to the sale of insurance
1: products. So I get that you're not really keen on opaque commissions, but I understand that you have other issues with the insurance business as well. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit for us, JR?
2: Yes, of course. Uh, another big problem I have with insurance product products is that they're... Um, are typically enormous informational asymmetries between the insurance companies and their agents who are are selling the products and the consumers who are buying them. And I think this applies across all lines of insurance. I don't think it's limited to the the areas that we see in financial planning quite a bit with with life insurance and annuities, but it's across all lines. Anyone who has ever taken the time to peruse an insurance policy contract knows that it's a complex document. And it's not realistic for most consumers to really understand the product complexities. And so this puts consumers at a disadvantage in terms of being able to compare and differentiate between the products. Um, As a result, things like insurance and annuity products may be more susceptible to both oversimplification by the uh, agent who's selling them and, and worse in in terms of uh, misrepresentation. So while insurance as a risk management tool uh, is it an important or even critical element of financial planning. Uh, it obviously has its warts.
1: Fair enough. So you claim that the insurance company created and exerts control over the financial planning industry. That is a pretty bold statement that is likely to raise the eyebrows of some of our listeners. Could you please elaborate on that comment and provide support for that assertion?
2: Certainly. So, um, when I have asserted in in other forums that the insurance industry um, is biased uh, and uh, biased toward and exerts undue influence over the financial planning industry, the initial reaction I often get is uh, skepticism and suggestions that I'm spouting conspiracy theory. And so um, I will let our listeners judge for themselves. But um, I'll, I'll just say, and obviously my opinion on this is biased, but. Um, it, it, that's complete and utter nonsense, and uh, it is a fact that the CFP designation is the most widely recognized credential in the financial planning industry, with over eight, 85,000 practicing members, according to the CFP board itself. Um, It is a fact that the CFP board spends millions of dollars each year on advertising to build brand awareness and to convince the public that its members are knowledgeable and trustworthy and held to a fiduciary standard. And it is also a fact that the CFP designation was created along with the College for Financial Planning in 1972 to give insurance agents a path to credibility beyond being regarded as merely salespeople. I mean, that's, it's a fact. Um, In fact, the, Entire unsavory origin story of the CFP uh, designation and the CFP board was chronicled in, uh, let's see, I think it was a July 2018 podcast by none other than Michael Kitsies. And for those of you who don't know Michael, he is arguably the most respected and widely followed thought leader in the financial planning community. And he is a, he's also a staunch supporter of the CFP board and the CFP designation and the title of his podcast was Insights from the History of Financial Planning Since the First CFP Class. In the podcast, Michael interviews a guy named Ben Coombs, who was in the first class of newly minted CFPs back in 1972. And Mr. Coombs, whom I believe has long since retired, um, unabashedly described how the designation was created to enable insurance agents like himself to be able to compete in financial services industry against stockbro- brokers, and how the designation gave them credibility that helped them sell high commission products such as universal life insurance and oil and gas limited partnerships. Um, so the link between the CFP certification and the insurance industry has never been a secret. In fact, Kitsis himself says in his bio that uh, he graduated from Bates College with an undergraduate degree in psychology and theater he began his career as an insurance agent with no academic background in finance. So to gain knowledge and credibility, he went through the CFP program. So like say nothing here is particularly scandalous or, or blasphemous. That's uh, that's how it is. And so uh, maybe with that, um, maybe it's time to cut off to a commercial break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: Nest Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. Instead. They want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nestegguru.com. listening to my two cents we'd love to hear from you on the program today call in to one 472 5788 that's one 472 5788 if you'd rather send an email the email address is info at fphawaii.com now back to my two cents here again are your hosts jr robinson and jessica lani rich
1: So the financial planning industry has its roots in the insurance industry. The notion that it was used by insurance agents to gain sales credibility is supportive, but is that the link still in place today or has the industry evolved beyond that commission-based sales focus, JR?
2: I would argue that the insurance industry is more entrenched than ever in financial planning. I would also argue that it is uh, much more sophisticated, however, today in how it uses financial planning uh, to gain traction.
1: Uh, can you explain, please, <laughs> a little more? <laughs> sure.
2: I think that's uh, I think that's needed. Uh, as I mentioned, this, the CFP Board of Standards, which owns the CFP designation itself, um, has stated that its objective is to make the designation a required standard for all who practice financial planning. In addition to the millions of dollars that the board spends every year on consumer advertising and PR, it also spends millions of dollars more lobbying politicians and regulatory authorities with that objective in mind. So um, that's, it's, it's, not, it's not so hidden agenda. Um, as I explained in a previous episode, all financial planners, regardless of whether they purchase the CFP designation or not, are already held to a strict code of ethics and a fiduciary standard. Uh, that are overseen and enforced by the SEC, that's the Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, If all, uh, excuse me, if the CFP board is is actually successful in in its lobbying efforts, what will happen is it'll gain a monopolistic control over the financial planning industry, and all financial planners would be required to purchase the CFP designation from the CFP board and pay annual dues. And uh, this, basically, the CFP board would become the de facto regulator of the financial planning industry. So um, here's how the insurance industry fits into the puzzle. The ability of the CFP board to spend this money, its millions of dollars on advertising and lobbying, is tied to growing its membership base. And by far, the largest source of new and existing members is this um uh, uh, is the CFP exam prep program that's provided through the American College of Financial Services. Uh, And a review of that organization's leadership, which anyone can see if they go to the the American College's website, um, finds that the board of trustees, the president's roundtable, the president's advisory council, and the alumni board um, all read like a who's who of every major insurance company in the country. So, so
1: what? What else can you tell us about the American College of Financial Services? I'm sure a lot of people are not familiar with it, and I'm guessing that you are no great fan, Jr.
2: I have strong feelings. Yes,
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> you do.
2: <laughs> oh, <no>, for real. <laughs> in, in fact, this is the part where I think um, you know, I really share my two cents, uh, my unvarnished opinion. And in my opinion, everything about this organization is—I um, guess I would just that being too far off I would say let's just call it slippery um, I'll let our listeners decide for themselves if if my opinion is too strong or not but um, let's just start with the organization's name and and this is a, a minor point but the short name for the for the organization the American College bothers me a little bit because it is so similar to that of American University which perhaps not coincidentally is actually located very nearby and I'm sure I'm not the only one who is um had people get those two confused. The original name for the American college, however, um, was the American College of Life Underwriters. So let there be no doubt that its roots are the insurance industry. Um, It later changed that to the more genteel sounding American College of Financial Services. Now, the college owns and provides training for the chartered life underwriter and chartered financial consultant designations, which tend to be popular among insurance agents and As I mentioned, it provides the prep curriculum for the CFP program. So what I find, and this is just, again, this is me, I I find, what I find particularly slippery is the manner in which the American college presents itself as a real academic institution. And to be absolutely clear, the American college confers no undergraduate degrees and has no undergraduate academic accreditation yet it refers to the CFP per curriculum as graduate-level studies, and it even has a pseudo-school within it, which it refers to as the Solomon S. Hubner School of Undergraduate Studies. Now, the reason that I say that this is slippery is that it seems to me that all of this posturing is intended to imply to consumers that the CFP designation, along with the CLU and CHFC designations, carry academic standing when in fact they do not. In fact, um, I think it was up till was it the end of 2008 or 2009. Um, I don't think you even needed a college degree to sit for the CFP exam. And even today, I think our listeners should be aware. I maybe mentioned this in a prior show too, but even today, no prior real academic experience in finance econ or accounting is required to be a CFP and to obtain those designations. So, um, now on its website, the American college references itself as an accredited higher education institution, but that's only in reference to two, um, master's degree programs that it has a master of science in management and a master of science in financial services. Um, and with respect to the master's in financial services, the only prerequisite to, um, to obtain that designation, to enroll in the program is you have to have been in the, ind- I think it's two years or three years worth of related industry experience and the ability to fog a mirror. Um, no undergraduate finance experience is needed um, and, and nor does one need to submit GMAT or GRE scores, which is uh, also a little bit unusual. So. Um, in Mr. Kitsey's podcast, Mr. Coombs made a point of explaining how the CFP mark was used to create the perception of credibility for insurance agents. And when I mentioned that the insurance industry is getting more sophisticated in how it, it does this, this is a good example. So the American College is doing a remarkably good job of creating the perception that its designations are on par with the designations such as jurist doctors for attorneys or CPAs or MD for medical doctors. All of those designations, however, require real actual academic training so um, to me that's a little bit dirty and like i said to me the american college um, is more akin to uh, like a diploma mill
1: jr you have said throughout the the time that you've been uh, doing your radio show that you are Definitely a zealous advocate for consumer protection and education and personal finance. And I think by you sharing with the audience right now uh, about the American College, that you have sort of lifted the, the, the shield over, over what is going on. And you are definitely educating consumers about this. And I think it's very important. And I think that you also uh, are sharing with us why this information is important.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll tell, I'll, I'll, I'll expand on that one little bit more. So um, one of the things I, I want to convey is okay. Is I've, I've, I've really taken a shot at the American College. Um, I will say one thing. I mean, people sometimes ask, you know, so are you saying the CFP designation is worthless? And I, I'll, I'll just be very upfront and clear about that. No, I'm not saying that at all. Actually, I do think it has real value. A lot of my friends have CFPs and I've been through the CFP curriculum program. There is useful information in there. Um, well, I found it to be considerably less rigorous than uh, my academic undergraduate econ studies. There was still plenty of information that I, I would say, especially for someone who had no prior finance um, education, that there was plenty of material in there that was foundational that you would need if you were going to ha- start a career as a financial planner. So I don't think it's worthless at all. Um, in fact, um, you know, my objection is, isn't so much at the to the curriculum itself. My objection is to the uh, suggestion by the American College that the curriculum is actually graduate level work and that it somehow trumps a real undergraduate finance or econ background, which it does not. And, you know, get my opinion, but I've been through both. Um, So what's happening in the industry is that the CFP board is using that false precept to make the case that the CFP mark should be the standard for the industry and thereby leapfrogging legions of financial planners, and I'll say myself included, who actually do have academic degrees in in relevant fields of study.
1: So what you've been doing throughout the show, uh, Jr. is actually showing us as consumers. Uh, in addition to talking about the American College, you've been showing us a relationship between the insurance industry and also the financial planning industry. And um, and and can you go into more detail about this?
2: Yeah. So by more detail, I assume you want to know, um, you know, how the insurance industry is 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 using that connection to further its own profits, right? Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) So, um, and I'll definitely do that. In my opinion, the greatest manifestation of the insurance industry's reach into the financial planning world can be found in the CFP board's self-defined fiduciary standard. So the CFP board routinely trumpets that all CFPs are held to this standard and that it's a higher standard than the one that's imposed by the state and federal regulatory authorities. However, If one actually takes the time to read the board's standard of conduct, what you'll find is that it's been very carefully worded to avoid requiring its members to disclose conflicts of interest in writing. They have to disclose conflicts of interest, but not necessarily in writing. And most importantly, they are not required to disclose either the amount of commission they may may receive or the percentage of commission they may may receive from the sale of products that have opaque commissions, i.e. insurance products. So... Um, to illustrate this by example, suppose suppose I'm a CFP with an insurance license and I want to sell a consumer an index annuity contract. I have an obligation to orally disclose that I may receive a commission from the sale of products, but I don't have to tell the consumer that maybe there's a 10% sales commission that I'll receive for selling it, or I'm just making up the numbers, but or that I'm going to get a $10,000 commission from doing that. Now, in my opinion, and I think most people would agree, most consumers who are listening I think would agree that information is material information that consumers want to know. Um, I'm pretty sure that the reason the CFP board does not require written disclosure of the dollar amount and the percent of commission its members may earn on the sale of insurance products is that the insurance industry would not allow that to happen. So there's the link I'm talking about. Now, um, getting back to the response that I got from that insurance CE instructor um, all those years ago, if insurance agents had to disclose the amount of commissions they earn on the sale of their policies, far fewer people would buy expensive insurance products. And that in a nutshell is why I often refer to the CFP board's fiduciary standard as a faux standard. Um, To me, that's, you you can't have a fiduciary standard if you don't require people to disclose how much they're getting paid or that there are comparable products that might pay less. Um, So as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm I'm an absolute zealot for consumer protection and um, that lack of required disclosure uh, is, um, is simply not in the consumer's best interest.
1: Jr. many consumers uh, do not ask for the commission, do not ask the insurance agent for, oh, what kind of commission are you going to receive on this? Why do you think that has been the norm? I mean, I never, quite frankly, I never even thought about this until you brought it up in today's show, that when you do purchase insurance as a consumer, that you have the right to ask what commission the agent is getting. And so you are bringing up, you are actually enlightening many consumers today about this. Why do you think a lot of consumers don't, don't ask?
2: Um, because it is opaque. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think, well, one, I think most people are tend to be polite. Um, there's, there's also been a, a couple of really well-known research papers um, that show that people are um, uh, people don't mind fees that they can't see, uh, that's, you know, they are more object, they object more to in your face fees. So if you told somebody you're going to, you know, it's going to cost, you're going to pay a $10,000 commission to buy this product. They're not going to, they're not going to be happy, but if they don't see it and don't ever know it, then they don't care. Uh, but like I said, in terms of a conflict of interest, if you're an agent, I mean, I think if you ask most people, would you want to know how much your agent got on the sale of the commission? I think most people actually want to know that. So, um, yes. No, that's, and, and do, I,
1: I, yeah. And don't no, insurance it, agents also get residual income from this, the sales that they're making? Yeah, yeah
2: they can. So, um, you know, I, and I think, you know, it's not required to be disclosed. The dollar amount, you can say, I'm getting a commission. Um, and, and I think sometimes you'll find financial planners or, or just straight up insurance agents will object to that question. It's none of your business how I get paid. Or how much I get paid. This is how the product works, and either you like it or you don't. Um, but I don't think that's right. I mean, that's my. Like I said, I'm a zealot. I know a lot of people. There are a lot of probably the majority of people in my field might disagree with my position on that. But um, uh, I do believe that um, that is a relevant point of interest that people should know the dollar amount of everything that they pay for in a financial planning relationship.
1: I mean, when so, you think um, about it, when you go you know, when in terms she... of the. I was going to compare that to walking into a restaurant when you go into a restaurant and you get your receipt, it has, you know, if you're going to be paying uh, some, some restaurants nowadays even include, what the service that you're going to give to you, they put the tip in there automatically. Some <laughs> restaurants do, some, some restaurants don't. But the but the whole purpose is that the consumer knows exactly what they're getting, including tax or whatever, when you go out, walk into your restaurant. And if you're comparing that to the insurance agents, what you're talking about, um, all the consumers do have a right to know.
2: Yeah, it's it's like a lot of other elements in our society where. The, the, what was acceptable 20 or 30 years ago is not acceptable behavior today. And I think that this, this is, you know, will fall into that category, too, where, um, you know, we, we look back and we'll say, wow, people bought insurance products and didn't know what the commission they were paying? I mean, that, that's the brokerage industry has sort of gone through that, that there was, there was competition about commissions until that's really, there are very few people who are just pure old stockbrokers anymore. Um, today, everything is transparent and that. It, and not everything, it's getting, it's gotten a lot better. But insurance, nope. There's no 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 movement towards disclosure whatsoever. I think we'll look back twenty or thirty years from now and say, mm, that <laughs> how, how do we ever do that? How did people not know how much the advisor was going to get paid? Um, so uh, so anyway, um, just so in, in terms of the scope of the problem too. I, sometimes people might ask, you know, um, how big of, how big is this issue in, in terms of um, opaque oh, commission on insurance product? Do most financial planners? Even have anything to do with this? I'll put it in simple terms. Um, the industry statistics that I've seen uh, have said that approximately, and I think the CFP Board even published this stat, um, approximately eighty-five percent of all CFPs carry insurance licenses. So obviously, people need insurance; it's part of the financial pro- planning process. Um, but disclosure and transparency are um, are generally regarded as the best disinfectants in the financial world. So. If there was complete disclosure on the sale of insurance products, there would be a boon to consumers, and I'm pretty sure the insin- insur- insurance industry is never going to let that happen. So um, on that, I think maybe this is a good time to go to commercial. Sounds good. When we come back, I understand you have some something- Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: Nest Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. Instead. They want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nestegguru.com. Listening to My Two Cents. We'd love to hear from you on the program today. Call in to 1 472 5788. That's 1 472 5788. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is info at fphawaii.com. Now, back to My Two Cents. Here again are your hosts, J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich.
1: are there any other ways that the insurance industry have made its way into the financial planning world?
2: As a matter of fact, there is um, another big way. Uh, in the late 1990s and, and early 2000s, there was um, a professor from York University in Toronto. His name was Moshe Malevsky. And uh, he published a series of um research journal papers, academic papers that were sort of, uh, exploring and extolling the virtues of really complex writers that were sold, uh, with, um, on, in conjunction with variable annuity contracts. And at that time, and even today, um, variable annuity contracts were a controversial topic in the world because they're always, um, tend to be associated with high internal expenses, product complexity, and, and of course, um, uh, High, often high opaque uh, sales commissions. So when Molevsky, who was, and still is, I think, a, a respected academic, when he was starting to write uh, papers that suggested that some of these writers might actually make the contracts attractive to consumers, the insurance companies seized on that opportunity. And um, not coincidentally, we would see Mr. Malevsky um, going around the speaker circuit um, to insurance com- company conferences. And uh, not surprisingly, um, and largely in, in response to his writing, sales of variable annuities boomed in the decade that followed and billions and billions of dollars went into these uh, contracts that were previously pilloried for being you know, uh, complex products with opaque commissions and, and weren't really worth in high expenses. So um, now the demise of variable annuity sales uh, that happened around 2008, 2009 is a story for another day. But that same sort of experience um, in resurgent annuity sales and insurance sales is actually taking place today as well. So um, specifically, over the last few years, um, academic researchers with close ties to the CFP community began writing papers that were extolling the virtues of certain types of fixed annuity contracts, um, including immediate and fixed annuities, and Um, These papers, like Malevsky's, have also led to uh, a surge in sales of annuity contracts. And these researchers, um, some of their names include Michael Fink, um, Wade Fow, and David Blanchett. These are all very well-known people, um, very well-respected researchers in the financial planning community. Um, And coincidentally, all of them are are on the the faculty of the American College of Life Underwriters. Um, Oops, did I say that? I meant the American College of Financial Services. Uh, coincidence
1: oh. <laughs> Yes, that was a dig. Um, I got coincidence. It too far. <laughs> Did you I hope everybody else picked up on
2: that I don't think it's a coincidence. I really don't and I, I actually raised that issue once and I, I perhaps was overstepping my bounds but you know I'm, I, like I said I'm a zealot. So um, I, I was in a discussion forum with Michael Fink and he scoffed at the idea and was and um, suggested that I'm a conspiracy theorist for bringing that up and, and my response is, hey, the optics are what the optics are. Um, the sales of those products jumped when those guys started writing about, um, you know, annuities. And those researchers are all on the American college payroll now where they continue to expound, expound on the, um, on the virtue of, of annuities. And, you know, there's, I'm not saying that there, there's anything necessarily wrong with the research they're producing, but it's, you know, it's a conflict of interest and it should be disclosed and it never is. I mean, it's there, they're presented as faculty of the American college and the American college of life underwriters. Look at, just look at who's on the board of directors and, and it's, you know, 50 or 100 names on there, and they are all the major insurance companies in the, in the country, and they're producing this research under that organization. I I, I think that's slippery. No, it's not, is it illegal? No. Um, is, is it slippery? Yeah, that's my opinion. Um, so that's where we get my two cents, right? Um, so as happened in Malevsky's day, um, even if the research is credible, um, the other problem that, that comes about it is that from the sales point of view, the sales force, insurance agents, financial planners who are selling these products tend to misuse or oversimplify the research. So if the research may have been written about one particular, say it was written about immediate annuity contracts, next thing you know, that's being used to sell fixed index annuity contracts. Something that's totally unrelated, but hey, I've got a paper here that says annuities are great. So Mr. Client, you should buy this annuity. Um, and that's what happens. That's what happened when Molevsky started writing those papers. And that's what I see it happening all around us today, too. So, you know, I've been as long winded as always on that, but I hope that explains um, why I regard, you know, insurance sales and financial planning as dirty business. And that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, I think slippery is probably the best word I could come up with it. But um, uh, but, you know, that is uh, my unvarnished two cents on that particular particular topic.
1: Um, I think you expl- you've explained it very well, Jr. Given, given us some amazing examples. I do like to know that, that uh, as we're talking on this radio show, there may be people who have just turned into the show and was would like you to recap the title of the show and also um, what we're doing here today. In case someone is just turning in, we want to make sure that they have captured everything that you've brought us today and some of the brief highlights.
2: Sure. So, I mean, the purpose of today's show was to raise awareness of the relationship between the insurance industry and the financial planning profession. And these days, the financial planning profession is dominated by the voice of the CFP Board of Standards, which itself has had its own own issues and we we'll talk about it in another show. I don't want to pick on the CFP board too much, although I'm always happy to do that. But um, but there is a strong insurance bias uh, in the financial planning world, and uh, the, the issues that I have with that bias uh, include the failure uh, to disclose opaque commissions and um, misrepresentation of sales, and all of that. But it's it's uh, like I said, it's a little bit dirty business. Fin- insurance is a necessary part of financial planning. Risk management um, requires you know, insurance as a tool to protect people against certain types of risk. But um, but it's, like I said, it's not um, it's not as transparent uh, or as consumer first as it should be. And. For its part, I can. T- I'm always scolding the CFP board, but for an in- for an organization that goes out of its way to say how it always puts to the interests of its consumers first, for it not to require that its members disclose the insurance the amount of commissions they receive when you're selling insurance products. Um, is it's to me, it's unconscionable. It's a faux standard. It's not a real fiduciary standard. They trumpet it as, as such. So um, I have lots of issues with the CFP board, but that was the purpose today was to raise awareness of that connection between the insurance industry and how that bias translates into um, how it affects consumers and how it how it um, um, is relayed through the CFP board. So um, yeah, that um, yeah, so that that's a, that's the recap. Um, what I thought we would maybe do. Since we have some time left, um, is to talk about sort of the tricky ish, the tricky issues that face financial individual financial planners uh, when it comes to dealing with insurance, because it's a business. You know, most products, most insurance products, are sold on a commission basis. So um, these days, there's been a lot. In fact, this is part of which is kind of hypocritical. The CFP Board makes a big deal about. Fee only financial planning—that is, um, where there's no commissions involved, and, and not not even asset-based fees. But you're, you're where the insurance, uh, excuse me, where the financial planner is simply paid on um, on a, a flat fee basis, or a subscription basis, or an hourly basis. And the problem is that you've got all the, the, there's research being produced that suggests that annuities are a necessary thing. So what so what do you what do you how do you recommend to a client? You, you say your fee only. Um, how do you recommend that the client, if if the academic research says your client should own an annuity contract, you send them to an insurance agent to go out and buy the product somewhere else? Um, I guess that's what you do, but uh, but it's tricky. I mean, it's, it makes life complicated. I'll, I'll I'll give you some examples where it's it's um, come up in 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 my business a couple of times. So um, sounds good. So one example is I've, I have a client who. Yeah, lots, I'm sure I'm not the only financial planner that gets this question, but lots, I'm sitting on about $40 million of client cash that used to be in bonds and CDs that's matured. And because interest rates are very, very low, there's not a great place to park that money right now. And so a popular topic lately, and one that I'm not necessarily enamored with at all, is that um, maybe a fixed annuity contract, a contract where you can lock up your money in in insurance um, although there's lots of these researchers I mentioned are actually writing about how these are a good thing, but um, if you can get say two to two and a half percent on a fixed annuity contract for a couple years, two or three years, these days, that's a pretty competitive rate. That's better than you could get on a bank CD, for example, or something like this. And again, this is not a recommendation. I'm just I'm just using this as an example. But the problem is, okay, so I have a client. I have clients who are paying me to be their financial planner whether it's an asset-based fee or whether it's flat fee or, or whatever. Um, there are annuity products. There are fixed annuity products that are coming to the market that don't actually, that are sold without a commission. So if I'm doing my job and I'm, you know, I'm feeling the plan, I should steer my clients to those products. But the problem is if the yield on those products isn't as high as the products that are being sold with commission, what do you do? You know? And I mean, I, I think the answer is, and this is what the insurance industry should do all along is Tell your client, <laughs> look, I got this two percent annuity. I'm again, I'm making up the numbers, so I don't want to get yeah. in trouble for recommending an annuity contract or suggesting somebody. But I'm um, to say, insurance uh, fixed annuity contracts paying two percent, and the insurance company is going to pay the financial planner a percent or a percent and a half commission. You got to tell the client that's all you do. Say, look, I don't have a better place to park the money. If you want to go through the hassle of going f- filling out the insurance application and you know all the that other humbug that goes with writing insurance business, then go ahead. And I'm telling you, if you do that, I'm going to get paid a percent or a percent and a half or whatever the commission happens to be on it. It's disclosure. Like you're paying me already. I get it. I'm getting getting paid on this too, but what else you want? It's, I don't have another alternative, you know? So, um, so yeah, that's an example. And I'll tell you another, um, you know, these little moral and ethical quandaries come up all the time. I'll give you another example where I have a client who um, uh, transferred her accounts in from another firm, and included in it were a couple of variable annuity contracts that she had purchased many years ago, and that she had begun spending down under the living benefit on the contracts. Um, and those contracts are—they're expensive contracts, but they were working pretty well. In fact. If she were to cash those out and try to invest them somewhere else to get the same return, we couldn't do it. And the contracts have a guarantee that will pay her for the rest of her life. She has no heirs. I couldn't find a better solution than those annuity contracts. But in transferring them in, I, I told her this. I said, you've got you know, three or $400,000 in these annuity contracts that you bought a long time ago are, are working for what you wanted them to do. I can't do anything better. And if you transfer them to me, they are paying an internal 1% per year. In other words, you are paying to the agent. So if you can leave them where they are, um, the agent who wrote them for you or who's long moved on, is, or whoever is on the agent of record on the they're getting paid. Um, if you want me to oversee the whole thing, then I'm going to be getting paid. You know, then I'm getting paid 1% per year. Your total expenses on the contract, or whatever they were, 3% or whatever. It is what it is. I mean, I can tell you to cash them out and there's no conflict of interest, but I can't get you the same income. So, what do you do? So, yeah. she's like, Well, I'd rather have you get paid. So, <laughs> but you get, I mean, it's disclosure and it's an uncomfortable conversation. Yes. And, and people listening might say that maybe that's a bad, not an ethical response. Maybe I shouldn't take that business. Maybe they're right. I mean, this is, these are, that's why insurance makes it tricky. You know, there, and there are lots of examples of that where it's just, um, it's not as simple as it should be. I, I, I hear it all the time in the, you know, lots of people sermonize about financial planning and about you should not do any commission business whatsoever. It's not as simple as that. It really isn't. Um, so, uh, trying to think of other other examples like that that have come up recently, but um, you know, I I, I I probably will always maintain a, an insurance license because. You know, And even just to review a policy that was written somewhere else, if somebody wants to do a life insurance review, in order for the insurance company to talk to you, you have to have the insurance um, license. And if, like, I really, really do not like, I don't even, I really avoid selling life insurance at any cost. Um, I really, if it, I, I will send people to other agents to do it. But sometimes there's a problem where I don't really have faith in the agent that I'm dealing with. I don't think that he's going to sell you the product that you like. So I you know, try to steer them to someone else. Or if I have to, I'll write a term insurance policy myself. Or something. I, I digress. But I'll, I, the, the point I'm making from all of this is that um, the fact that insurance is sold on a commission basis with opaque commissions makes life difficult. It's not, It makes the ethical picture of being a financial planner a little bit murkier than it that otherwise needs to be. So um, anyway, um, that's I think all we have time for on our show today, as always, Jessica, I appreciate you guiding us through all this today. And I hope for all of our listeners that this has been um, an informative show and that uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share my two
0: cents. Thank you for tuning in this week to my two cents. Be sure to join J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich again next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern time and 3 p.m pacific time on the voice america variety channel until we talk again aloha